Hello and welcome to today's episode of Not Defined by Endo. With me, your host, Taniela Oguru. Today, we will be discussing the psychology of sex. This is the topic that makes many uncomfortable. There is stigma when it comes to speaking about any difficulties one is experiencing with sex. However, many endometriosis sufferers are silently experiencing painful sex as a symptom of their disease. I will be speaking today to Dr. Lauren Fogel-Mercy. Dr. Lauren is a psychologist, relationship therapist, and certified sex therapist. She specializes in sexual difficulties such as low libido, problems with arousal, orgasm difficulties, and sexual relationship problems. She is currently writing her first book about libido. Her practice is in Minneapolis, Minnesota. If you are currently experiencing painful sex or you know someone who is, then sit back, relax, and let's have a listen. I just got Hi. back from the gym, so that's okay. <laughs> I've also got my face cap on. Yes. <laughs> and it's Saturday, so it's the exactly. day to wind down and just take it easy, right? Even though we're still working. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. So thank you so much. Um, It's nice to meet you. You Um, as well. One of the things we endometriosis sufferers go through is, um, you know, we all have pain and then painful sex. Mm -hmm. And people don't talk about it a lot because... Right. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, For a lot of reasons. Because of stigma around sex because it's a woman's issue for a lot of people like all of that stuff yeah exactly so Mm -hmm. when I saw your page I was like I think I definitely want to speak to this yeah and I saw that you post quite a lot of um very inspirational content and very like it's a page where people definitely learn from um so I was like I have to speak to her oh thank you I really appreciate it and then thank god you said yes yeah Yeah. well painful sex is something that I treat regularly yeah um I uh, started off studying just general clinical psychology uh, and started to um, develop more interest in the realm of sexuality and human sexuality and sexual health and so when I finished my um, my degree, I came to Minnesota, which is where I am currently, um, and I studied a two-year postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Minnesota, and it was basically a specialty training in um, human sexuality. So that's where I got my start in really uh, specializing in this area, and ever since I've been... Um, mostly minus uh, maybe about a year in between, um, practicing full-time with um, uh, sexuality as my specialty and uh, something that I really enjoy and am passionate about. So, um, And then it just sort of builds from there. So uh, I expanded from that into doing um, more studying and work with couples therapy uh, and relationship therapy and uh, and then my background is in general mental health as well okay and how would you say social media has influenced the direction your career has taken and how you work i've actually learned a tremendous amount on social media and um, i always like to tell people that you really can curate your own experience on there so 
I, um, I'm very inactive on Instagram on my personal page and I, it wasn't really something I was, um, drawn to. Uh, but I started to notice that uh, professionals were developing professional pages and developing a presence on social media. And I can't exactly remember, you know, what brought me to it. I think it was when I started thinking about writing a book, which I'm currently in the midst of doing, um, that I thought maybe I should get online and start connecting to people. And it's actually, you know, pulled me in different directions. And I've um, you know, read books that I may not have been um, aware of. Otherwise, I have met uh, other professionals and people that I wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, it's been a tremendous uh, resource for connection and for learning. Yeah. So I think it's really broadened the scope of the work that I do. And it's actually made me a better therapist. Wow, that's amazing. It's um, interesting that you say that because for me as well, I hardly do anything on my in personal Instagram. It mm-hmm. feels like I think the last time I updated um, my Instagram profile was um, January 2019, like around yeah. previous Christmas. Yeah, yeah. There, I'm very active on Not Defined by Endo because that's where you know I connect with a lot of women like endometriosis sufferers, and I've learned so much as well from people like you, from professionals, and it's really helpful that we've got this platform and there's so much learning that can be done without having to maybe go into the obviously you still need to go for medical care like Uh you have to go into medical care but right you can learn and so much direction you can get from from social media so yeah yeah right it's really helpful yeah and i think a lot of therapists are protective because they talk about, you know, it's not therapy, it can't substitute for therapy, yeah. but it certainly can be a wonderful resource and it, and it can be very therapeutic. Yeah, exactly. So today, like I said, I would like to talk about two main things, uh, sexual health, um, especially for women that have endometriosis, because one of our symptoms is um, painful sex, and then just talking about anxiety in general. So I'll start with um, let's talk about the shame that exists when it comes to talking about, um, you know, painful sex and how, you know, the experiences of it. Yeah. Um, you know, shame and sexuality seem to be combined for so many people. And I think that the strongest reason for that is that we don't, in most of our cultures and in most of uh, the places around the world, we don't talk very openly about sexuality. Um, And when we do, we might not talk about it in the healthiest way or in a positive way. And so um, sexual shame is a really rampant issue for a lot of people. And where it shows up with folks who have pain uh, with sex or painful sex, is um, similar in in other ways to um, other types of sexual shame, which I think is just, you know, comparing ourselves to others and thinking that, you know, it's not supposed to be this way, or there's something wrong with me, or I'm not doing it right. And Mm -hmm. we kind of go to that place of like blaming ourselves. And then um, for folks who have, I mean, there's there's women who have endometriosis and then also trans men and non-binary people can also have endometriosis, basically anybody with a uterus. Um, But for a lot of women or people who have been socialized as women, um, they might take on some roles where uh, 
um, they feel like it's a duty or an expectation to be sexual with their partner and that that's what they need to do in order to sustain a relationship or fulfill their role. Yeah. And so it's, it's, amazing and and very sad and also makes me angry that so many women have felt like I have to put myself in pain mm -hmm. and I have to endure that just because, you know, especially if I have a male partner, I feel like his pleasure comes before my comfort. Yeah. So, um, and, and then we feel very protective of that and secretive of that. So it's very hard for some people to talk about and what's amazing is that when you do start to talk about it, that can help lift that shame yeah. because shame, uh, Bernie Brown talks about this, shame thrives in secrecy. Mm -hmm. So when we're on our own and, and alone and don't have anyone to confide in, it just festers. Yeah. So we really need to be able to, uh, you know, have some community or talk about it so that we know that we're not alone. Yeah, definitely. That's my message. And that's what I've been trying to say in, you know, my message, my podcast. And I keep telling people, you're not alone. If only you know how many people, it just takes one person to say, this is how I feel. This is what I experience. And then you see that there's loads of us out there that feel the same way or experience the same thing. So yeah, very true. Yeah. So in your yeah. practice or your, um, experience what are the physical or should i say medical and psychological reasons for painful sex yeah you know there's so there's dozens i think at this point of things that can cause uh painful sex endometriosis is one of them um certainly um you know menopause can cause uh, sex to be painful with the changes in hormones um after giving birth to a child vaginally yeah. That can cause pain with sex. Um, some people respond to birth control in a way that sort of affects their hormones, and that can then sometimes cause painful sex, especially right like at the onset of sex, it can be painful. Mm -hmm. um, there's something called vaginismus, which is where the muscles get really tight, and it's an involuntary response by the body that basically tenses and braces and makes it really difficult, if not impossible, to have penetrative sex. So those are just a couple of them. And, and there's really a number of, of things that can cause it. So, um, you know, I think one of the most important first steps for people, if they haven't already figured out the source of what their pain is, mm -hmm. is to find the right medical provider and really make sure that they feel like they're working with somebody who is a specialist because um, in many cases, just a general practitioner may not be as um, aware of the multitude yeah. of things that can cause pain. True. Okay. So it's, it's a number of things and some people have a couple of things going on. For some people it's, um, you know, the origin can be hormonal, it can be muscular, it can be uh, something dermatological. Right. Um, so there's all these, there's a ner nerve issues that can be part of it. So we have to kind of first suss out, you know, what's going on because each of those things will have maybe a different treatment plan. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So understanding what the problem is, is like a great first step to knowing yeah. what the next step to is. Okay, cool. Yeah. So how do you speak? So we, a lot of us, um, struggle um even on our own like like we said about the shame how do you suggest or advise that we speak to our partners 
um, about this problem because I know that there's lots of women that just don't say anything even to their partners and your partner is supposed to be your support system supposed to be the number one person <laughs> so how do you advise that we go about this yeah I mean I think the the thing to know is that if we continue to have painful sex it becomes more and more ingrained in the body and then the right. body remembers that sex is painful and it just it's this cycle that gets worse and worse over time and what the body starts to do is it starts bracing for pain so everything tightens and clenches mm-hmm. and it's the body's way of trying to protect us and so i think just understanding a little bit more about like that's what the body is doing so the more i do this some people think you know maybe i can just do it more and it'll just go away yeah. but it's actually sometimes making it worse unfortunately so um, so that's just something to keep in mind. Now, when talking to a partner, um, when it comes to talking about sex as a whole, like the, the sexual relationship in general, I often recommend to do that when you're not in the moment of it. So mm-hmm. like find a, a comfortable spot at the table or the couch or something like this and, you know, have clothes on and, you know, have a conversation maybe when it's not in the moment. So it feels a little bit more intentional and maybe a little bit less vulnerable. So sitting down and saying, hey, you know, I've been noticing something and I'm not sure what's going on and I want to look into this, but I think maybe we should figure this out first. Um, One of the first things that we recommend at the clinic that I work at, at, uh, which has both psychologists and uh, medical providers, is we recommend stop having penetrative sex if it's causing pain because we don't want to reinforce that cycle. Yeah. And so for a lot of people, that's such a relief because they don't want to be in pain. Yeah. But they also sometimes feel like, well, I don't want to be the one to, you know, deny my partner sex or to be the one to make that decision. So sometimes it's almost like giving uh, people permission that they can, they don't have to do this anymore. Yeah. Um, But we get to make that decision too. We get to say, you know, I am not, willing to put myself in pain. Um, and that kind of leads into what sex therapy becomes, which is initially finding some maybe other ways to be sexual or intimate that doesn't involve pain. Yeah. And that basically becomes the foundation. You know, what I tell a lot of people is, you know, the rule right now is don't do anything that causes pain and yeah, anything exactly. else that you enjoy that doesn't hurt, just do whatever it. you want. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I think, you know, I think that's an important piece and, and sexuality for a lot of people is so much more and broader than um, just penetrative sex. And so I think that's something to include in a conversation with a partner and just saying, you know, this doesn't mean that we have to be abstinent from sexual contact, but maybe we need to switch up what we're doing for now until this issue has more uh, treatment or until we've started some treatment plan or until we have a better sense of what we should do to move forward. Okay. Because what happens is we end up unintentionally getting ourselves further and further away from being able to have pain-free sex because now the body is starting to recognize the sexual experience as a threat. Yeah. There's something you said that um, made me have a question when you were talking about the um, different causes of painful sex. And I was yeah. thinking of the fact that some, some women find that they do not get, um, is this stimulated? So they don't get wet at mm-hmm. all. 
and mm-hmm. um, that's also I think that's usually a bit of a a reason sometimes for why it, why it's painful. So I think I would like to know why is that why does that usually happen, and um, is there like something they can do about it? Absolutely. Yeah. Lack of um, like adequate arousal and stimulation can be uh, absolutely a reason. And there's a a saying out there, I don't know its origin, but you know, without, you know, adequate arousal and lubrication, it's like trying to go down a water slide with no water. Yeah. It's not going to go very (laughs) far or it's not going to feel so fun. No, it's not. So, um, you know, the things that can contribute to um, how lubricated we get can be you know, very different things. Sometimes it's that we're not getting enough stimulation, that we're just not yeah. doing something that we find arousing. Yeah. Um, but sometimes we could be very into it mentally, but our body is just not showing those signs of arousal. And that is actually very normal. It's called arousal non-concordance. And it means that sometimes, you know, there's what our brain is doing and what our body's doing, and they don't always match. So if we're mentally into it and we want to be doing that and our body is maybe not as lubricated as we'd like, Mm -hmm. this is where lube comes in and is a wonderful (laughs) resource. Yeah. Um, I will say though, and I'm not sure about the brand differentiation across um, countries, but I will say that there are certain lubes that are more recommended than others based on what their ingredients are. And so you might want to do a little bit of Google searching before you pick up just something at the pharmacy or the the store, um, just to get a little bit of education around um, lubricant ingredients, because sometimes what they sell just over the counter can have some things that can cause um, uh, bacteria or infection or uh, irritation. And so not all lubes are created equal. And so there's there's um, quite a few uh, different companies that have ones that are um, more highly recommended. Okay. Is there any one that you would recommend to your patients? Um, any brands that you really like and you think are safe and good to be used? Yeah, the top two that I like are, um, so for a silicone-based one, which is nice because it stays um, slippery longer, because yep. basically silicone is sort of inert. It doesn't get absorbed into the body. So it stays on the surface of the skin longer. And the company that I like um, is called Uber Lube. Okay. And so um, I'm not sure if you can get that uh, across the globe, but I do know that you can find them online and see if they sell in your area or maybe uh, purchase through uh, their online shop. Okay. Um, So Uber Lube is a great one. The only downside is that because it's silicone, it's not going to get absorbed. So if you're somebody who has a lot of vaginal dryness, mm-hmm. it's really not going to do much for that. Okay. So sometimes it's nice to have a water-based lube because the water-based lube will get somewhat absorbed into the skin and the tissue. Yeah. And um, so that can sometimes help as uh, having like a moisturizing effect. Um, the one that I like here in the US, I believe it's an American company, um, is called Good Clean Love. Okay. Uh, and they have an online presence as well. It's in a green bottle. And the one that I recommend is called Naked. That's the one that has just sort of the simplest ingredients and it's mostly organic and again, can kind of have a moisturizing effect as well. Okay. 
here um, in the UK, they, I think there's one called Yes, Yes, Yes Organic. I was just going to say that is the one that I'm aware of in the UK. And yeah. I, I do like that brand as well. Yeah, it's good as well. And they are, they fit under that, um, the criteria for having more body safe, non-toxic ingredients. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a good one. Thank you. So let's talk about um, the place of sex toys. Um, yes. When it comes to painful sex, like the neutering, everyone's been talking about that one online. And um, a few pelvic therapists and friends of mine have talked about it. So, what do you think about them, and uh, do they really help, or you know, to improve? The ONUT is such yeah. a great. Um, it's a great aid. I say it's it's you know it's not exactly a toy because uh, it's. Mm, maybe it's I mean aid. it could be a toy, but it's more of an aid. It's more of a. It's, it's like an, it's aid. A, an accessory. Yeah, an accessory. <laughs> yeah, so, I agree. Um, Emily Sauer is the one who started the Onut, and um, she has her own personal history of um, painful sex, and so she really saw a need out in the world for products like the one that she ended up designing. And I actually helped kickstart um, the product when she was designing it because. Oh, really? I thought it sounded great. Yeah. And this was, I met her at a, a conference a couple of years ago and it just sounded like such a great idea. So um, I think it's one of the best that I've seen on the market for um, the actual product that it is. So it's basically a buffer or a bumper. Okay. And so what that does is if you have either a penetrating partner um, like with a penis, or if you're using a toy like a dildo or something like this, the O-nut goes around that to the okay. base and it basically is stackable. And I think there's four pieces to it. It's very stretchy silicone, so it's pretty comfortable. And it basically helps you to tailor the depth of penetration. Okay. So if you are somebody who notices that you have more pain um, with more depth and the further in that you go, this is a really nice aid for that because it gives you a little bit of peace of mind to control that both for you and then for a penetrating partner, they don't have to worry so much, you know, is it going too far in? Mm. So it can give you a nice peace of mind and it's customizable so that you can add or subtract the rings based on what's comfortable. Okay. Um, other bumpers and buffers that I've seen before tended to be a little bit larger. They were a little bit firmer, so they may not have been as comfortable. So I think it's a fantastic product and I have one in my office that I often will show my clients um, and I've heard really good things about it from people who have tried it out. Um, so I think it's fabulous. And But I do think it's important to keep in mind what its purpose is for. So if you are somebody who has pain more at the vestibule, which is right at the opening into the vaginal canal, yeah. this may or may not do much for you because that's right at the opening. Yeah. So it just sort of depends what your needs are. Um, and if you're having vestibular pain, which is like right at that opening, then that requires, you know, treatment first before trying something like an ONUT. Okay. All right. Interesting. I, yeah. always, I was always curious about it. Yeah. About ONUT, like what, how does it really work? What does it do for people? So it's kind of nice to speak to someone that I was part of you know, the process of bringing it to market as well. That's really amazing. Well, I just gave her a little bit of money. I can't say that I really helped design or do any, but I, I would, I would, 
um, very fond of the product from the beginning. And I, I think that it's, um, it's a great resource for people. It's also a nice thing to have if you are someone who has been abstaining from sex for a while uh, or penetrative sex, I should say. Um, and you're trying to reintroduce that now and your medical providers or your team has said, okay, I think you're ready to revisit that again. Yeah. It can also be a nice aid for breaking that up basically into smaller pieces so it doesn't feel like all at once. Yeah. So it's sort of a nice way to break that down so that you can kind of go at your own pace. So it can also be used really nicely for that purpose as well. Okay. Are there any other um, accessories <laughs> that we haven't talked about that you know can help with some painful sex? Um. I'm trying to think of accessories. Um, nothing that's coming to mind per se, but I do um, want to mention that, you know, if vaginal sex is painful, um, you know, we, we might want to spend more time exploring clitoral stimulation. Okay. And there are toys. I mean, there's dozens and hundreds of toys that can be used for that. And that's something that's used externally. So some people will experience pain more internally or at the vaginal opening, but they're fine with clitoral stimulation. So that might be something to explore in the meantime, while you're trying to figure out how to treat the, you know, the endometrial pain or the um, vaginal pain. So my final question for, sexual pain <laughs> sure <laughs> is um i saw something that you wrote um online about something called the polyvagal theory so yeah tell me a bit more about it yeah so i am i will give the caveat that i am still sort of a student of the polyvagal theory <laughs> it's new to me and that is actually one of the things that i found and learned about through instagram uh, that i am tremendously grateful for so um, the polyvagal theory is um, something that was developed or founded by uh, Dr. Stephen Porges in 1994. And basically it has to do with the vagus nerve, not vagus like Las Vegas, but V-A-G-U-S. Okay. And that is our 10th cranial nerve. It's sort of the back of the neck. And what it does is um, our understanding is that it basically shuts on and off our survival response. So like fight, flight, freeze. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, if we're in a calm state, then it's basically in that sort of rest, digest, calm space. Yeah. And um, so a lot of people have heard of fight or flight or freeze. Um, so this theory um, really explains it in more detail and um, really goes into the neuroscience and, um, you know, the, the nerve itself and sort of what mediates it. What's really interesting about that is how much that can affect our sexuality and then also our mental health as well. So if your body and, and it, it, the vagus nerve is really referring to our nervous system. Okay. So if our nervous system in is, is in a state of um, survival, if it's in a fight, flight, freeze response, that's going to affect our ability to be interested in sex and to get aroused with sex because we're designed to first survive and then do the other things. Yeah. So it's not, you know, it wouldn't make sense from a biological standpoint to get aroused if you were in a life or death situation. Yeah. The problem is our brains and our 
our current uh, living situations mm -hmm. are often not the same kind of survival um, situations that we had, you know, back in prehistoric days mm -hmm. or pre-colonial days or, you know, many, many years ago. And so um, our nervous system will sometimes, it's almost like it's misfiring. It's sort of on high alert looking for things that could be threatening. And so we kind of get stuck between real threat and perceived threat. Yeah. So when we're going through, you know, our day-to-day -day lives, many of us are actually in survival mode. We're just go, go, go. Don't even think about it. On to the next thing. And that's not the most conducive for a sexual response. So I've been sort of exploring how that might affect our sexuality and then how to translate that into um, things that people can do to uh, better their sexual experience. Um, and what's interesting is, and, and I'm still kind of reading up on this, so we're in a parasympathetic state, which means the rested, uh, yeah. relaxed, calm, and safe zone. Um, and we need to be in that state for um, mainly for desire and arousal. Mm -hmm. We actually kick into a sympathetic response when we have an orgasm. So it's kind of interesting how that shifts into yeah. more of a, like the fight or flight system sort of mm -hmm. shuts on when we have our climax. And then we wow. go back into sort of a, a rest state or even like a sort of freeze state where we just want to curl up and kind of shut down. Yeah. So really interesting. So I'm, I'm slowly learning about that. There is a podcast called the Polyvagal Podcast. Okay. Um, and folks can find that in the, um, in the uh, store or the app or whatever and um, to learn more. But it's fascinating and it really might explain uh, some things about sexuality and also mental health. Yeah, I'll definitely go look for that. Yeah. Theory and it kind of makes sense when you think oh, yeah. about it. And um, I guess if we constantly, like you said, live in a sympathetic um, state, so fight or flight, it yep. makes sense that our bodies are unable to then enjoy pleasure or, you know, the sexual experience. So, um, right. Yeah. And then we basically go into anxiety mood, which takes right. me to the questions about yes. anxiety. <laughs> Absolutely. Nice segue. <laughs> I know. Now let's talk about anxiety. <laughs> sure. So to stay or to come out of the anxious state, how do we set boundaries for ourselves? So if we're, it all has to work together, every part of our lives have to um, work together for us to kind of be in a rest and digest state. So what advice do you have? Um, for us to set our boundaries to protect our health? So um, I think the trickiest thing about this is that it's going to be different for everybody. So mm -hmm. I wish there was like one universal, like just do this thing and everything will be good. Um, and, you know, I think the ways that we handle our mental health needs are as varied as we are as humans. Yeah. Um, but there, there, do, there does seem to be some things that... Um, tend to be more universal. Um, and they tend to be based on the nervous system because there are certain things that will actually stimulate the vagus nerve and yeah. help us shift state. So, um, and then, you know, around setting boundaries would basically be 
um, you know, carving out the time for that or communicating the importance of making time for that or, you know, letting other people know that I need to make sure that I preserve time to do some of those things. Um, the things that have, uh, and I, th and I think we're still sort of learning about this stuff because 1994, well, that sounds like a while ago, um, in like a science realm, that's kind of new. So I think we're still figuring some of this stuff out. But um, from what I've read so far, there are certain things that tend to stimulate the vagus nerve or tend to help us enter that calm state. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting. A lot of it has to do with extending our out breath. So an extended exhale. Okay. And I think the, the origin of this is that if you were truly in a real threat situation, and you had to run or fight or, you know, get away, you would likely not be so able to take a deep breath and have like a very long and extended exhale because yeah. you would be breathing from your chest and you would be like ready to run. Yeah. So I believe that the origin of that is that that sort of triggers the body to realize like, oh, okay, we're actually able to do this. So we must be all right. Yeah. So things that extend the exhale are practicing and learning uh, deep belly breathing or diaphragm breathing okay. and really practicing. So it's in through the nose and then extending the exhale out through the mouth and actually practicing and training your body to breathe more from the belly than from the chest. So that's something and you can go on YouTube and find a bunch of videos about how to breathe um, from like the, from the belly and do deeper breathing. Um, but things that also will produce an extended exhale are singing and humming and talking and chanting. <laughs> All of those things we end up kind of putting more out than we're taking in. And basically your inhale is just to produce the next sound. Yeah, that's true. So there's a lot of healing that comes from singing and talking and chanting and, and humming. And so for those of you who find yourselves doing that, particularly in times of stress, that is your body's way of trying to regulate itself. That's really quite a beautiful amazing. thing. It's amazing. Apparently, and I don't fully understand the science of this, but I'm just starting to um, kind of dive into that with some of the reading I'm doing. Um, cold water is sometimes really helpful. It, it sort of gets us out of that fight or flight. I'm not exactly sure how or why. Um, but particularly cold water to the face or to the back of the neck. And so like a cold compress or cold cloth or just splashing some cold water on your face when you're feeling really heightened anxiety, sometimes that can really help ground us in the moment and take us out of that mode. That's such a simple um, hack. And mm -hmm. I never thought about it, but it's true because when you feel nauseous, sometimes you, you know, splash cold water on your face, yep. you have a migraine, you put cold compress on your head. So that's right. It, yeah. So I guess that makes sense. And that's something that if anyone asked me, how do I get rid of my anxiety? I wouldn't say just splash cold water on I your know, face. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, I think it's most useful, especially in times of um, intense anxiety. Yeah. So, like yeah. when feeling panicked or feeling like this really, um, strong sort of response. It's maybe most helpful in those situations. Mm -hmm. And then some folks are even doing this on a more regular basis through either um, uh, cold water therapy where they're going for like dips in pools that are kept yeah. at a cold, a cold temperature. Or what you can do is at the end of your shower or your, uh, well, yeah, it wouldn't really work with a bath. So maybe end of the shower, 
you know, put it on cold for a minute, just let that all go over your body and then turn it off. So maybe like a, a 10 second cold immersion. <laughs> I'm not really there yet. I'm kind of freaked out by that. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to be doing that anytime. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> no, I know. I know. But it's nice to know that that's available. And especially, you know, if you're at, at work or out and about, if you're feeling some of those symptoms of anxiety that are building up, yeah. just, you know, go to a, a restroom and find yourself some, just some water to splash on your face and that might help as a reset. Yeah. So tell me about the uh, mental load. Uh, the mental load, yes. Yeah, it's a big topic on your <laughs> on your profile, yeah. and I'm really yeah. interested and um, in understanding what it is and how do you bring it up with your partner. Just tell me everything. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So the mental load um, is something that I first learned about probably like a year, year and a half ago. And the term that I was first introduced to was emotional labor. Um, and I read a book by Gemma Hartley, who, um, who wrote a book called Fed Up. And it's all about emotional labor. And um, so mental load, emotional labor, invisible labor, these are some synonymous terms. Sometimes there's some nuances between them. Um, but the idea is that our day-to-day -day lives, particularly in a relationship and running a household and a family, um, requires a tremendous amount of attention to detail, energy, uh, physical labor, emotional labor, mental labor. And this is part of what's exhausting us. Yeah. The day-to-day -day sort of grind is what we call it. But the number of things that we have to pay attention to and think about is unbelievable and it's part of why we're all so exhausted and sick mm -hmm. and struggling and mm -hmm. anxious um, and traditionally um, this largely fell on women and what we found today is that even though there have been social changes where more and more women since you know the 50s 60s women are now working full-time out of the house in larger numbers than ever before they are still not abdicating that responsibility at home. And so they still take on a disproportionate amount of the household responsibilities, the childcare responsibilities, and just making sure that everything is running smoothly and working well. And so um, this is a, a large part of it. It's something that I'm uh, writing about now. This is a large part of why some people struggle with their desire for sex because it's like, oh my goodness, I just barely, you know, got to the bed and I'm exhausted mm -hmm. and I just like just sat down and like the last thing that I want to do is be sexual right now. Like I just need to breathe. So the mental load really affects um, everybody and this affects couples. It affects people who are single. It affects um, people who have children and people who don't have children. It's, it's everything that we do to take care of running our lives. So it's from the little things like replacing the toilet paper and, you know, making sure that the fridge is stocked to, um, you know, over the holidays, a lot of the labor falls on women traditionally, mm -hmm. sending out cards and decorating and making sure gifts are purchased and everybody gets something that they want and, you know, uh, putting together a meal and, making sure you call family and say hello, all of these things. Yeah. They take energy and they take work. And a lot of it is invisible. 
and the invisibility is because many of us take it on and just take it as an assumption that that's just the role we're supposed to do. And we don't even sometimes recognize how much we're doing and what toll it's taking on us. And so I started writing about the give and take that naturally fluctuates in a relationship. So it's it's usually not just 50-50 all the time. Yeah. Uh, and someone wrote in my comments, well, this really kind of brings up the mental load. And it was something that I had been meaning to talk about for the longest time because I've been seeing it um, circulating my feed for a while. I was like, well, I guess now we're going to talk about this. So uh, the last several posts that I've made are all about the mental load. And it yeah. is amazing um, how many women have reached out to me saying, oh my goodness, like I didn't know that there was a word for it. And I didn't realize that everybody else is feeling what I'm feeling, that yeah. this is exhausting. So, you know, I think the mental load can contribute to relationship dissatisfaction. And we know yeah. that to be true. It can affect the desire to be intimate with a partner. And it can also exacerbate some of our physical health because it's keeping us stuck in a fight or flight. Wow. So it's a, it's a tremendous thing. I just um, uh, downloaded a couple of other books uh, that I just started reading. One is called Fair Play. Okay. Um, which looks really interesting. And then, um, oh my gosh, I'm going to forget the name of the other one. I think All the Rage is what it's called. Um, okay. But if folks look up Mental Load, they'll see more yeah. about it. And okay. the hard part is the question that you asked earlier, like how do you bring that up with a partner? So if mm -hmm. assuming you are the person who's taking on more of the mental load, or at least yeah. you're perceiving that you are, yeah. um, it can be then it's mental load to bring that up and <laughs> to try yeah. to do it. Nicely yeah, exactly. and to make sure that your partner is not going to be defensive and to yeah. try to, you know, be encouraging that it is in everybody's best interest if the mm -hmm. mental load is more shared. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have to be, again, 50-50. It has to feel fair to everybody and fairness is subjective. So it's really about, you know, negotiating. And I have a couple of resources on my Instagram feed um, for how to do that. Okay. Um, but one of them is, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, oh my gosh, that's me. I, I need to talk about this. We need to do something. Um, blame me. I, I love when people use me, throw me under the bus. Like I was listening to a podcast or I saw this, this what she said. <laughs> and she said this thing and I, I related to it. And can we talk about this? This is something that I think is affecting us. And maybe it's affecting us in ways that we don't realize. And for the partner who's benefiting from the other one having more of the mental load, it might feel great to them. <laughs> <laughs> or it might seem like, well, what? I don't have a problem with this. Like this works in yeah. my favor, but it actually may not because particularly the folks that I see and when I work with couples, if um, let's say it fits that more traditional dynamic and it's the female partner that's got, you know, more of the mental load and then low libido is part of the issue. Um, if those are correlated in any way, and then they, she has a male partner, if it's that sort of dynamic, and the male partner is saying, I want to have more sex, and she's feeling overburdened, then that would definitely be something that's worth talking about, because it's affecting both of you. It's not just like it affects one person, it affects the whole family. I think hmm. for endometriosis sufferers, I would say they would struggle more with guilt, 
Um, so the mental load might be on the partner because, you know, they are always sick and he's always, you know, picking up the slack, taking care of you, taking care of the kids if you have any. So the mental load might be um, basically heavier towards him and then mm -hmm. he might feel guilty because mm -hmm. you don't know, you, you can't help it. So I think for many of us, it would be kind of the other, might Reverse. be around, but then rather than feeling like, oh, well, you know, <laughs> I can't do anything about it. You feel more guilty. So, right. You know what, what might be helpful is to actually look at, because it's, it's quite possible that there is still a lot that's being done that is going unseen or unnoticed or undervalued. Because sure. even if you are less able, let's say, to do some of the physical work around the house or to do some of the errands or certain things because of your physical health, um, there might be a lot of other things that you are doing that are not being recognized either by you or a partner. And even, you know, things like, so if you do have children, you know, tending to their emotional needs, asking them about how they're doing and showing interest in, you know, what is going on in their lives, that's mental load. Yeah, true. Uh, and that might be stuff that you're doing or, um, you know, if you're at home and you're taking care of ordering things online that the house needs to be replenished, that's mental load. Or, you know, keeping in touch with the in-laws or family because you want to make sure that you have, okay, the next get-together is scheduled. That's mental load. So there might be a lot of things that are still there, but yeah. they're maybe not as visible. And so um, the book that I'm reading now, the one that is called Fair Play, talks about you know, visible equals valued. Like we will value it once we, we have to name it first. Yeah. And so sure. sometimes it helps to just look at all of those things and really uh, recognize what we are doing. Very helpful. Thank you. So <clears throat> the books you talked about, Fair Play and All the Rage, right? I think it's called All the Rage and then uh, Fed Up by Gemma Hartley. Okay. Are there any other books you would recommend, both for sexual health and for anxiety, that you could recommend mm -hmm. to our audience? Yes, absolutely. So um, for sexual health, um, the, my favorite book about uh, particularly women's sexual health is called Come As You Are, and that's by Emily Nagoski. And it talks about a whole range of things from desire and orgasms and how stress affects us. And it's just the book that I think every every woman should read at some point. I think it's just so valuable. Um, a book specific to painful sex is called When Sex Hurts. And that's by Goldstein, Pakal, and Goldstein. Um, and that one is a really good, um, it's more of a resource. So it's not something that you would have to read cover to cover. It's more about being an informed patient so that you know you know, here's all the things that can cause painful sex. Here's the kind of questions to ask your medical provider. Here's the different treatment options. So it's a really nice resource. Okay. Um, and you can probably find that online. Okay. Um, and then um, Becoming Cliterate by Lori Mintz. <laughs> Love it. It's <laughs> a really good read about orgasm uh, inequality and how so many, uh, particularly women, are um, maybe less informed about their own bodies and how to have orgasms. And there are still a lot of people out there who um, expect to have orgasms from penetrative sex, 
And for a lot of people who have a clitoris, that's not how it works. And so it's a really nice resource to just kind of catch up to, you know, speed with the sex education that many of us didn't get. Okay. Are there any final words or final advice for, for women, for our audience? Yeah, I think, you know, having a, a team, having the team approach to handling some of these issues. Um, I really am a fan of community care and it takes a village and we need, we need a good support system. And that can be, you know, friends and family just sort of knowing what's going on and being there to help out when we need help, but also having a really good uh, care team as well. And so if you feel like maybe your providers are not the most expert in this field or they're not able to answer some of your questions, you know, it's worth finding people that you feel comfortable working with. And that could involve, uh, you know, gynecology, it could involve somebody who specializes in sexual health, it could involve a pelvic physical therapy, could involve sex therapy. And so I know that that's a lot of things and it's very overwhelming, but I also think it helps to uh, feel less alone and to feel like there's a direction. Thank you so much, Lauren. Oh, my pleasure. And it's a wrap. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode today and learned a lot. If you did, I would love to know. Send me comments or even a DM through my Instagram or Facebook page. Share with your friends and subscribe to the podcast. If you also have any questions to ask or topics you would like me to discuss, feel free to shoot me an email on info at notdefinedbyendo.com. I love to hear from you all. All the resources mentioned by Dr. Lauren can be found in the show notes. Until next time, my name is Teniela, and remember, you are not defined by endo.